I don't usually do sermon titles. I usually like to just let the word speak for itself. But after going through the entire of chapter 11, the, the very ending, and we'll, we'll get to that, we're going to work our way through to get there. The mystery of free grace. Free grace. You know, I was thinking about how do I talk about the idea of this being free or free grace. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm almost starting with dessert, okay? So if you're at a meal, you're always told, wait for dessert for the end. I'm actually going to start with a little bit of dessert at the beginning. Then we'll kind of cover the main meal, and we'll finish with that wonderful taste of free grace and that doxology, just so you understand where I'm going with this. But I was thinking about free grace and the idea of, of something that's free and how we value things as people. Now, this is not always the case, but typically, if you're given a free handout, like let's say you go to a, uh, a museum and they give you a pen, it's free. You're like, okay, this is a great pen, that's nice, or a keychain or whatever, and you hang it on the wall or, or you put it somewhere. I was thinking about something that had very little value, realistically, but that I put a lot of personal value on. And what I decided to share as an illustration, kind of the opposite, so free grace, right? We all know, intellectually, we should value this incredibly. But yet, we often put our value in other things. So I'm going to give you an example from my own life. When I was about 12 years old, uh, was that right? Hold on. Uh, I might have been a little older than that. I don't want to give away my full age. So I'll just say, in 1991, so some of you may not have been born yet, baseball cards were the thing. Everybody was collecting baseball cards. It was a $1.5 billion business, just to put it in perspective. And one of the most famous cards in recent time had been a 1989 Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card that was released in the Upper Deck Extended set. It was a limited set. Not everybody had one. My dad, doing computer work, had been paid with a baseball card as a tip. And I, as a kid, wanted that baseball card so bad. It was worth $60 at the time. I was like, oh my goodness, it's $60. How am I ever going to get 60 bucks to buy it from my dad? So instead, I had to work it off. And I worked. We had a little poodle. The poodle hated me. It would bite me and bark at me and all sorts of things. I took it out. I walked it. I did all sorts of things to try to earn that card. If you look at the value of that card, which I eventually did earn, today, it's like ungraded. It's like 15 bucks or 20 bucks or something like that, right? It lost money, right? But I still value that card. It is still held in a one-inch thick plexiglass container that is shielded from sunlight and has an additional layer inside because I worked so hard for that card. But if you look at it, what's its real value? I had to work for it, so I, I valued it. But if you look at its real value, eh, it's not that much. But here we have an example of free grace given by God. Free. It's not by what you do or I do. It's what he does. Do we value that? Did the nation of Israel value that? They didn't. They had worked hard all their life to understand the law. And sometimes they didn't understand the law, or sometimes they broke the law, and God had to punish them, just like we punish our children, to bring them back in line. They had been cultivated for over a thousand years with the law to understand. And that was a part of their nature. It was part of what they do. It was part of their identity. And then Jesus comes along, and on the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, you've totally missed the boat. You've totally missed it. If you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed sin. 
It's not this letter that you're looking at. It's your heart condition. You can't meet that. And what do the Pharisees do? They're in power. They want to stay in power. They want to do what they know is familiar. They have a path. They want to keep that. And this, this Jesus was a disruptor. He does all these things. We don't like these things. And so then we get into that aspect of hardness, that blindness, right? They wanted to stick with the same old, same old. They didn't want to keep up with the times, right? They didn't, they didn't see this Jesus the way that we're seeing him as Gentiles right now. And that's what chapter 11 is talking about. It's how the Gentiles today see Jesus and why Israel doesn't yet see him that way. And so that's kind of my intro into what we're going to be getting into. There's one other thought I want to bring up before we get into it, and then I really will. I'll, I'll get into the scripture. Don't worry. I, I'm, I'm not going to miss out on any of the scripture. It's, I was trying to ask myself before I started, can I fully comprehend or imagine the grace that God has given us? Can I fully comprehend that? And my answer to you is no, I cannot. And I have a pretty good gut feel that none of you can either. And while we're going through this, we're going to get to a part where we talk about how the Gentiles fit. Right? Paul is writing to the Gentiles. He's, he's using tons of Old Testament references. In fact, we're going to be looking at um, some Job. We're going to be looking at some Ecclesiastes today. We're going to be looking at all sorts of stuff that Paul's quoting. Because what is his goal? His goal is to talk about this jealousy and bringing back in the Israelites. And what are they familiar with? They're familiar with the Old Testament. But this book is written towards a Gentile audience. And he wants us to understand that we shouldn't be full of ourselves about where our current position is. So I'm giving you a lot of the big picture views up front, and then you can see those as we work through the passage. The only other thing that I want to mention before we start, I know some some people are going, man, when is Steve actually going to start? (laughs) This is like a bad movie where there's just five different endings that keep going on and on. No, no. I want to remind everybody that even in the original temple, there was a place for the Gentiles to come and worship. We have the Ethiopian eunuch who was worshiping. God's plan, and we have Ruth and Rahab, who ended up being part of the lineage of Christ. God's plan has always been and will continue to be to include the Gentiles. But in this church age, things have kind of changed a little bit. And that's what a lot of what's going on in Romans is talking about, right? In the church age, God is coming more directly to the Gentiles. We don't have to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, to worship at the temple, right? He's come. He sent the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So there's a big change there. All right, now let's, uh, let's start taking a look at what's going on in this passage. In Romans chapter 11, we start, and if you're reading, I'm going to be reading out of the NIV primarily. Um, my notes sometimes switch between King James and ASB and a, a few other versions because I usually read multiple versions. So if you're following along, NIV. Verse 1, I ask, did God reject his people? By no means. This is a very strong statement. It actually means no way did God reject his people. His people are still there. Okay? So this question is not a question of, oh, did he reject his people or not? I, I don't know the answer. The answer is, he didn't reject his people, period. And it's, uh, there's a lot of verbiage in there. And he continues, I am an Israelite myself. Now, remember, this is Paul writing. He's writing primarily to, to Gentiles, but there are Jewish believers. We know that because of Acts at Pentecost. There were Jewish believers who came 
and there were also um, converts, proselytes, from uh, Rome that came also at Pentecost. So there, there are people who understand Old Testament that he's writing to in Rome. He says, by no means, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So I'm going to take a pause here. It's kind of interesting. I was doing a lot of word studies, and I did the word study on Israel. And what you'll find is that in Paul's writings, he, there's two Greek, there's several, there's two, uh, where do I start? There's the word, the Greek word for Israel, and there's a Greek word for Jew. And when you read Paul's letters, he differentiates between the two. Typically, when he's talking about Jews, and he's like, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, he's talking about today's, his um, compatriots, people in his time frame. Typically, when he's talking about Israel, he is actually talking about either historic Israel, the nation, or he's talking about the future Israel, the nation. He's not necessarily talking about just people who are Jewish at the same time frame. So he's specifically using the word Israel here. And you can read earlier parts of Romans. I'm sorry I don't have all the different verses that you can jump to to where he uses the word Jew rather than Israel. But here he's talking about Israel. And then he gives his own lineage. I firmly believe that at this point he is talking about the physical descendants of Abraham, Israel, who will believe, or are believers, right? Um, He's talking, and and we'll continue in that. I I make that point because, and I could be wrong, because this is a future-looking statement, right? You you know all those warnings when you do things associated with... uh, um, uh, stocks and bonds and future purchases. It's like, oh, future-looking statements could be way off, and you know you can't blame us for anything that happens. That's not exactly where I'm going. We definitely have some truth here, right? But God does not always fully reveal a mystery at one time. He may reveal that mystery over time. Here he's talking about Israel, and Paul is specifically talking about his own genealogy. This leads me to believe he is talking about physical descendants of Abraham. I only mention that, like I said, because there are people. Um, some people believe that the church is now the fulfillment. Uh, I'm not going to say that I necessarily agree with that. Some people believe that the two are distinct and that the promises are still for Israel. I'm just trying to point to the fact that in this passage, he is definitely talking genealogy. So, and this is, this is the passage that it gives about why he knows that he did not reject his people. Why Paul understands that God did not reject his people for whom he foreknew. Don't you know the scripture that says in the passage about Elijah, how, he, how Elijah appealed to God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was the response? God's response. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, uh, if it were meaning if it were works, grace would no longer be grace. So even in today, our present, and his present and our present, we have a remnant of Israel that believe. Paul is an example of this, right? He is a believing Jewish person who believes in the Messiah. God has always kept a remnant for himself 
throughout history, in the present, and that will be true in the future, which we'll get to. But the question is, why just a remnant, right? And there's also another question that might be in some of these readers' minds. If we jump back to chapter 10, and I I remember um, Evan talking about the verses that we all have memorized, right, in chapter 10, where it's uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 9 in Romans. So if you flip one page back. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So everybody hears that, and then typically we stop, right? But if you are a Christian at that time, you continue reading. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Remember, I I mentioned, Paul likes to switch between these terms depending on what he's talking about. So if you're a Christian, if you're a Gentile, and you read that passage, and you say, oh, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, why why do I need to know that there's something else going on for Israel, right? Why do I need to go into chapter 11 and start talking about the fact that God hasn't rejected his people? Well, it's because of that, right? If you're a Gentile, you might be like, yeah, well, I'm here. This is good. You know, I'm in. They're out. it'd be like two brothers fighting for something, right? One brother eventually wins, and they say, oh, I'm awesome because I got it. What they didn't know is that mom and dad actually bought a second one, and they're planning on giving it to the other child later to make sure they don't fight later on, right? I I mean, it's not exactly that, but you get the idea. So we're back in 11, and we we find that he still has a plan. But that plan is an interesting one. I would tell you it's something that I don't understand. It's part of a mystery. We start in verse 7. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain. All their life, they've heard about the promised seed, the seed that would come from the woman, that would crush the head of the serpent. Right? They've known the Messiah is coming. They seek it. Anyone who is devote is seeking that. But they missed it. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. Again, I'm not going to get into all of the details of the elect. Uh, I would ask that you go back and listen to Abe's service on that because we could spend the rest of the time just talking that. But the others were hardened. And Abe also talked about hardening, so I'm not going to get into that necessarily here. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, or ears so that they could not hear to this very day. They've been hardened, or they've hardened themselves. Another way you could look at it is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. I'm going to turn there real quick. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they give themselves over. And this is technically talking about the Gentiles, but it's that hardening of the hearts, right? Gentiles can harden their hearts. Israel's now hardened its heart. And the idea is there's a dual, dual idea here between whether God hardened or they hardened it themselves from repetitively hardening themselves. 
So we have Israel, and they're in this condition where their, their hearts are hardened. And I would argue that this continues even to this very day. I think those words still stand today. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. That's a hard passage if you think about it. Uh, Paul is, is referencing um, Psalm 69, uh, verse 22 and 23 there. That psalm also has some other prophetic items that are written, written uh, that Christ fulfills. Uh, verse 21 of Psalm 69, uh, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And we read in Matthew 27, 34, they had gall in the wine, and Christ refused it. David was in such a bad situation, he was surrounded by people, enemies. And those enemies, he said, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Here Paul uses that same passage from Psalms to talk about Israel. Let's talk about the current nation. It's a hard truth. The people who have been seeking all their lives, who have been following, who have a law, who have been cultivated, have missed out. A portion, not all. There's still a remnant. And there will be a return in the future. Engrafted branches is the title that the NIV gives to the next section here. And this is where we start to see some unique aspects, right? So we've kind of finished talking about Israel's current state. They've got that hardness. They're a bit blinded. Um, and the, but the Lord still has a plan. He hasn't given up on them at all. There is still a plan for Israel. Again, I ask, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. So he's restating what he said earlier. Are they beyond saving? No. Are you beyond saving? No. What do you have to do? You have to humble your heart and understand that Jesus Christ is Lord. Accept your sin. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So think about that. I'm a Gentile. As far as I know, I have no Jewish heritage in any part of, of my family tree. And I, I believe I can say that because if you think about it, we may all have some Noah's blood somewhere, but Israel didn't show up until we had Jacob. So you have, you know, you may have Adam and Eve. You'll have some Noah in there at some point in time, right? At least through the fatherly line. So in a sense, we're all sort of related. But as far as I know, I'm not related to Jacob, so I'm not part of Israel. I'm just making that statement. So that makes me a Gentile. Why has God given me the ability to go straight to him? Or he actually came straight to me, and we'll kind of see that here in just a little bit. It's to make the, the nation of Israel jealous. It's, it's not because of something I have done. 
I'm not some great Gentile where I'm amongst a big sea of Gentiles and somehow I came to the realization that Jesus Christ is the one and, well, okay, there is a personal aspect of salvation, I get that, but I'm not saying there's something that I've done that makes me so special, I'm above all the rest. God, in his infinite wisdom, chose me, and hopefully he's chosen all of you, and if not, talk to me later, or any of the elders, if you don't know what I'm talking about, but he's chosen in order to make his people, who he chose earlier, who have so far not really shown a good, consistent message to the world, right? I mean, just read any of the kings. You'll see lots of examples of inconsistency to the world. Even David, who had a heart after God's own, still sinned with Bathsheba and sent uh, Uriah to, to die at the front line, right? He still loves that people, and he loves you and me. And he's using us in his infinite wisdom to bring the other people that he's chosen back to himself. Now, does that downplay our salvation? No, it does not. Does that downplay God's love for us? No, it does not. We just read, whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, salvation is available to us. God has put us into the fold. But we have to understand that it's not because we're somehow great or wonderful people. We are just as sinful. God here is saying, I still have a plan for Israel. And you know why that's amazing to me? He still has a plan for Israel? It's because despite everything that's happened, and we're going to read in just a little bit, despite the fact that they're an enemy to the gospel, he loves them, and he hasn't given up on them. And that means he loves me, and he won't give up on me. He keeps his promises from the beginning to the end. He doesn't say, I'll do one thing one day, and then all of a sudden, the next day, he's like, eh, I changed my mind. He keeps it. It's consistent. And that's what this is telling those believers. He's saying, yes, you are part of the salvation, but also you have to understand this bigger picture, this mystery that's being revealed. And you have to understand, those promises are still coming true. And it's because God keeps his word, and he's keeping his word to you. You can stand on that. So I'm looking at verse 12 now. If their transgression means riches for the world... So let me, let me come in. Um, rather, because of, uh, rather because of their transgressions, this is Paul talking about uh, the nation of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? This is actually a pretty difficult verse. I I will answer to you this. I'm not sure I fully am capable of explaining this particular verse. And the reason why is it's about the question of fullness. I will tell you that as I read more and more, um, there are a lot of very smart people who believe that fullness is... Christ's return, and the nation of Israel comes to him, right? And in that fullness, there's, there's that, um, that time and millennial reign. When I first read this, I will tell you what I thought is, man, if Israel had just believed in the first place, there's that fullness right there, and we'd all have a model, a beacon. Everybody would come directly through and understand what God's grace is because he'd already, they'd already be there. They'd be our example, you know, Christ comes to earth and they follow. I, I'm saying the smart people are probably right, but at the same time, what, ha- what would have happened if they had accepted right off the bat? I think this whole world would be completely different. 
it would be completely different. But you know what? God in his infinite wisdom, he decided to switch things up a little bit for us. And now we, the Gentiles, the people who were not given all this law to begin with, although we could have proselytized at the time, right? Like I said, there's a, there's a passage in Acts, and I'll be happy to turn there if, if you're wondering what I'm talking about. But at, at Pentecost, there were definitely people there who were coming to worship who were not Jews. So, always remember, Gentiles were always supposed to be part of God's plan. And they were always able to come to God. But at the time, it was through the law and through Israel, through, through, um, through the law. Now, it's by grace, completely by grace. And it was always by faith before. I'm not saying that's changed. But the way that we practice our faith and obedience looks a little different now, right? Because now we have the Holy Spirit living in us, and he's helping us understand what's going on in all this scripture. That's that's all I'm trying to say here. And then Paul wants to remind us in verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm talking, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. And I hope that I can arouse envy and save some. I think this is pretty self-explanatory, so I'm just going to keep moving through here. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from death? Again, most theologians believe this is a future state where um, the nation basically has that blindness, hardness removed, and you have the, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of eschatology in here. Um, if you are a millennialist, uh, many believe that that would be the start of the millennium. Um, if you're all millennialist, well, there's a lot of, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of things to discuss, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, reading this, uh, I, w- I would agree. Had they accepted, it would have been life to death. Instead, now, we have to wait for that future life to death. Verse 16, if part of the dough is offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So now I'm going to be working in a slightly different direction here. So I actually looked a lot at first fruits, and there was a lot of different thoughts about what the first fruits were, right? The, the dough. Is that the remnant of Israel? And because the remnant of Israel were good, then it's like, okay, if you have the roots and the roots are good, uh, what, what are the branches? And early church fathers believed that the roots that are, we're about to talk about for the olive tree were associated with uh, Christ. Then further theologians feel that that's actually Abraham. Um, I, I, I don't have a great answer at all that. What I can tell you for sure is that the root is holy. It's a cultivated olive branch, and that's what we're about to get into. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want to give you a little bit of a horticulture background, just so that you understand when I'm talking about wild olive branches and, and cultured olive branches. So if you have a wild olive branch or a wild olive tree, it's not like today's current fad of going back to what's called heirloom fruits, Right? If you go back to heirloom tomatoes, it's this ugly-looking tomato that tastes wonderful because it's sweeter. And everybody's like, oh, let's go back to those. If you look at a wild olive tree, it has a really tiny fruit and almost no oil. So you end up growing these things, and you press them nonstop, and you get almost nothing from them. There is something. There is a fruit. But over time, they've been cultivated. And when they're cultivated, they're bred. And how are they bred? They're actually bred so that instead of going deep into the soil with their root system... 
because they have to break through and then be hardy. They're actually designed to spread their roots out wide in order to take in all that nutrition around them. And because they get all that extra nutrition, they have wonderful fruit, lots of oil, lots of benefit, a good harvest. Well, what happens when you graft a wild olive branch into this wonderful root system? It's interesting. Nothing. It just grows like a normal wild olive. It grows a little bit better, but it doesn't really get that much bigger. So the word image that's used right here is that we, as the wild olive branch, have been grafted in and the, the natural olives have been taken away because they were not accepting, right? There's still a remnant. Remember, there's always a remnant. But we as Gentiles have been grafted in. And that's the image that he's trying to give them because no farmer on this earth would graft in wild olive branches into a cultivated tree. You just totally reduced your yield, right? We still produce fruit, but the fruit is not quite as big and luscious as what you would get with the original branches. We're not quite fitting the same way that an original branch would, and it takes time for the tree to heal and to grow those branches. That's what he's trying to remind us. He's like, you haven't been cultivated, but God loves you so much, he still puts you in. You're still holy because the root is holy. That's our position. Isn't that amazing? He loves us so much, despite the fact that we didn't even know him before. And he still cares for us and grafts us in as part of who he is, or part of the, of the branches. But it comes with a solemn reminder. Now, this is maybe a personal item. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. I believe that if, if the Holy Spirit is in me, he doesn't get ripped out of me. And I believe that if, if Christ is in the Father and I am in Christ, and it's like the hands clapped, you're, you're in there, Right? But he warns the Gentiles here, if he removed those branches from the natural branches or from the cultivated branches and put in the wild ones, what makes you think he won't continue to prune the tree? Now, I'm careful with this. I really believe if you are saved, you are saved. That, that is, and I, I will happily go through some passages with you afterwards if you would like to, to walk through that. But what I think he's trying to get here, don't be full of yourselves. Don't be the kid who sees someone else's misfortune and laughs at them and thinks how great I am because I didn't have that happen. We've never done that, right? You've never seen someone who kind of ticked you off a little bit and then something bad happens, you're like... <clears throat> you know, we've never had that sin. I know, I know. But I'm saying that, that's what he's warning against. Don't be full of yourself. Realize this. Verse 22, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not uh, persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. Oh, oh, interesting. If their hearts change, they're grafted back in. This is not a, a, a final cutting out. The, the, those branches can be brought back in. After all, you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Israel still can be grafted back in, and we know there's a remnant. 
In fact, he kind of continues with this. Now, if you're reading the uninspired title is All Israel Will Be Saved, I'm just going to read the verses here. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Now, remember, he's writing to the Gentiles. He just mentioned that earlier in in verse 13. So don't be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will return godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is a very future forward-looking statement. And I will tell you that God has a plan for Israel. I think that is very evident here. When he says all Israel, the more and more I read, the more difficult it is for me to try to explain. If we look, if we look at other prophetic Old Testament scripture, Zechariah 13.8 is a prophetic, forward-looking statement. And it talks about God taking one-third, refining them in fire, and restoring them. It's not a whole picture. So if you, if you look, all Israel, is he talking about the one-third that he's going to take and refine in fire? Is that, the, is that a parallel passage? If you read in Ezekiel 20.33-44, he has a passage there where he talks about there are those who are, um, I'm trying to remember the rebels. There are rebels, and then there's everybody else that he takes. And he gets rid of the rebels, right? When he says all Israel here, I believe he means a future-looking statement of the nation of Israel because of the consistency of the way Paul uses the word Israel here and not Jew. Somehow they will all be saved, but what is that all? Is that a portion based on what we see And Zechariah and Ezekiel, is that everybody is suddenly changed? The one thing I know is that they've had a partial hardening of their hearts. That hardening will end, and they will all be able to see past their current condition. That's as much as I'm going to make a statement for for that particular passage, right? And the other passage that comes up is, what about the fullness of the Gentiles? We know in the millennium that all nations are going to come to him. So I can't tell you that there won't be future Gentiles that won't believe. That passage could mean this is the church age now, and under that church age where God is working directly with the Gentiles to make Israel jealous, he's got an idea, and when that comes to fullness or fulfillment, that they have been jealous and then they open their eyes, that's the closure of that time, and then we go into, the, into that next segment, right? So those are two ways to think about that. I don't want to make it sound like God's going to be like, this is the number of Gentiles, and now we're done. That's not the case. And I don't want it to sound like all Israel will be saved. I don't understand what all Israel is in this case, right? If you, you could go to 1 Kings chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 9, where it talks about all Israel gathers. Well, obviously, they did it in a day. They couldn't all get there in one day, right? So that, that can also be a bit of a, a figure of speech. Um, but here Paul tells us all Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles. But that's a forward-looking statement. I don't know how that exactly will be fulfilled, but I know it will be because it's in God's word. And it's interesting here, if you think about it, we as Gentiles, or I as a Gentile, I'm, I'm making an assumption for the rest of the people in the congregation that I shouldn't make. 
I, as a Gentile, I lived in sin. I lived in all sorts of separation from the Lord. I didn't know the Lord. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily brought into my culture, right? If you think about it, our culture knows more about Roman and Greek mythology than it knows about Christian doctrine. Um, even though I enjoy some movies that is, are associated with that, you'll hear in, um, in the last few years, the sword of Damocles keeps coming up as this thing that dangles over somebody and will cut them in half. That's from Greek mythology. I, I, don't, I don't hear the writings on the wall used very much, which is actually more from Daniel, right? I'm, I'm just saying, if, if you look, we have this very Western mindset, and we're very focused... Um, Look at the Marvel movies right now, a lot of Norse gods, Loki, Thor. Um, in fact, my wife and I just watched Avengers last night, and that was interesting that Captain America is the only one who mentioned that there's a real one God and he doesn't look like Thor. You know? I mean, it, we, we both chuckled when we heard that because we were like, yes, you know? Um, but, but generally in this world, in this thought, we have a lot of this influence that isn't really associated with God. It's associated with, with a Western mindset that's existed from Greek and Roman times in our world. That's not true everywhere, right? You've also got uh, Middle East, which has a very different way of thinking, and you've got um, different parts of Asia that have a different way of thinking. So just, just keep in mind those other areas. But what is he doing? He's saying the Jews thought they knew what they were doing, and now they're eventually going to have their eyes open and they're going to realize what they've done. The Gentiles have their eyes open now. We realize what we've done. We're all going to be on a playing, a level playing field. He has extended equal mercy to everyone. Fathom that. Equal mercy to everyone. And then I'm going to move into this doxology. Oh, the depth and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Verse uh, Job 11:7. Can you fathom the deep things of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? That was Zophar to Job. Then we have the next passage. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Job 21:22. Can anyone teach knowledge to God, since he judges those on high? And that was Job, back to his companions. So if you remember the book of Job, it's a lot of back and forth between he and his companions, and then it's between Job and God. And we're, we're, we're going to get to the next line here, which is basically God telling Job exactly what God thinks. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Job 35, 7 is the first one I'll start with. If you are righteous, what do you give him, or what does he receive from your hand? That was Elihu to Job. Job 41:11 Who has given to me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven is mine. And those are God's words to Job. 
We don't fully understand all of this mystery. But we need to remember that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This mystery of free grace, do we value it? Do we humble ourselves? Do we realize that it's not me? Do we realize? That's what I'd like to end with. Thank you very much. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, I humbly come before you. Father, if in my life I have been vain or conceited with regards to my salvation and the position that I have, help me to understand that now and help me to move forward in a way that's humble and understanding of your grace. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here or anyone that we know, Father, that we would either be willing to humble ourselves or to talk to our friends who don't know about this amazing grace. Thank you, Father, so much for what you've done for us. And I pray for the nation of Israel. I pray for the day that you will open up their eyes. And, Father, that we can all understand the mercy and grace that you've brought into our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.